we're going to continue speaking about the incarnation this Christmas time and what that means for us. And last week I had a look at Jesus come down and what that means uh, for us to believe in the incarnation. And this, today I want to speak a little bit more this way, horizontally, in terms of how the incarnation affects how we see other people, how we do mission, how we do ministry. Because we, once we understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do for us, it profoundly changes how we see other people and we, how we love the world. And so I'd like to speak about being the fragrance of Christ this morning over this Christmas time, that you will be the fragrance of Christ to your friends and to your family. And I want to start with John, John chapter 1, verse 14, which is probably one of my favorite scriptures in the whole of the Bible. It simply says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. Amen? And I love that the Bible describes Jesus like that, that He came to us full of grace, kindness, understanding, seeing people how God saw them, but He also came full of truth. And I think that's the great challenge that we face as Christians, isn't it? To live full of grace and to be understanding to others, but at the same time, not to compromise on the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And it's a really hard thing to live in in the 21st century, that we are full of grace, but also full of truth. But Jesus came to show us exactly what that looked like as He came to us, God made man. Amen? And so I want to connect in to what I said last week, just to give a framework for what I'm going to say today. And we had a look last week at Jesus coming down. We had a look at the creeds, remember? So we looked at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and what they teach us about the Incarnation, and in particular about the Trinity, and how these truths were fought for and preserved for us by the early church fathers. And I just thought I wanted to just say a little bit more about Athanasius this morning. Because remember, Athanasius was that guy in the, the second century, uh, third century, who fought a guy called Arius. And Arius was supported by Constantine, the Roman, Empire, uh, Roman emperor that declared Christianity to be the official religion in the ancient uh, Roman Empire. And Constantine was, he was sympathetic to this guy called Arius, who said that Jesus was not in the same way God as God the Eternal Father was. He was not the same substance as God was because he was a created being. And I remember I said that was because of Gnosticism, this influence of thinking, Greek thinking, into the culture. And so this was a real challenge in the first four centuries of the church because if Jesus wasn't fully God, there is no hope for you and I. There is no sacrifice for sins. There is no atonement. There's no forgiveness if Jesus wasn't fully God. And so Athanasius, over the course of his life, fought for this. And remember, we talked about the council at the Nicene uh, Council that met in uh, 325. And um, at that stage, Athanasius was a young man. He, he served as a secretary in that, in, in that um, uh, council to a guy called Alexandra. And uh, soon after the council met and, and, and they made this kind of judgment, uh, he became Pope. Athanasius became Pope. And um, it led to a whole life of conflict for him because he continued to fight with Constantine. He continued to fight with other bishops. And he, he fought over the whole of his life to stand on the doctrine of the Trinity and what it meant. And so there were bishops at that time that were sympathetic to what uh, Arius had said. 
And it would have changed the, the, the course of Christianity if Athanasius has not stood. And he became known in this way, Athanasius contra Munda, which means Athanasius against the world. And that was how people described him, Athanasius contra Munda, against the world. And I'm so grateful for Christians that have stood against the world. Augustine stood against Pelagius who said, we are saved by our good works. Augustine said, we are not saved by our good works. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Amen? And why am I saying this? Because you're going to stand at the school gate. You're going to be in your office. And you're going to feel like, I am alone against the world. No one believes like me. I have a view that, of marriage that no one holds to. Perhaps I should just tone it down a little bit, not be so outspoken about how I view the great God of heaven and how he impacts our lives on earth. When you feel like that, remind yourself, Athanasius contra mundum. Be like him. Stand. Stand for truth. Stand for the truth of the gospel. Even if you feel like you're the only person in your office, stand. Come on now. This is what it means to live in the, uh, in the spirit of Jesus in the 21st century. I'm actually I'm aware I probably do sound quite loud and out of tune this morning, but I'm not angry, all right? So just please. So there are some things worth fighting for. And I want to encourage you as you stand as a Christian in the 21st century, stand on the truth of who Jesus is, even if you feel alone. You are not alone. There are many like you but you might feel like the whole culture is against you. Athanasius contra mundum. Let it be a little motto in your life when you feel pressed in and hemmed in. You stand for the truth of who Jesus is. Amen? So we had a look at five things. I want, I want to say more this morning. It's talking about what the incarnation means and demonstrates to us. Remember, it's, first of all, I said it demonstrated the love of God that passed all understanding that he would come and be with us, remember? Secondly, it demonstrates the humility of God towards us. Thirdly, it validates all of creation and human beings in particular, that God would come and dwell with us as a human being. And fourth, it, it ushered in the plan of redemption for us. Without the incarnation, there is no redemption. There's no Calvary. And that's why we celebrate so wonderfully over Christmas. And lastly, it assures us that God is present with us in every single challenge and trial that we face. Amen? And that should encourage you deeply that in your life, whatever you're going through, it's not that God is some far-off entity in eternity somewhere. He's right present with you by the power of His Spirit in the person of Jesus, helping you to navigate every single trial of your life. Amen? And so I encourage you to allow those things to permeate in you over this Christmas time to dwell on them, to meditate on them, that they would transform the way that you see yourself, that they would transform the way that you see others, that you see the world, and that you would perceive your mission in the world in a completely different way because of what Jesus has done for you. Amen. Um, I don't know about you, but I do find this time of year a little bit difficult. Um, when the sun is not shining, I find it my energy level goes down. I want to sleep. I don't want to do anything energetic. So if you're feeling a bit like that now this morning, like me, let's, let's encourage each other, right? We're going to get to the end of this year. The 22nd of December is the shortest day of the year. And then the sun starts to shine a little bit more each day. So we're nearly at the lowest part. 
and it's going to go up, all right? So if your energy is feeling a little low this morning, I get it, because I also feel like that. But um, Athanasius contra mundum, all right? There we go. So I remember I finished my message last week with a quote of a girl called Jill Caterini, reflecting on the incarnation as she said this. The incarnation is the only story that touches every pain, every lost hope, every ounce of our guilt, every joy that ever matters. Where other creeds fail, Christmas, in essence, is about coming poor and weary, guilty and famished to the very scene in history where God reached down and touched the world by stepping into it. I love that. God touched the world by coming down and stepping into it. The great hope of the incarnation is that God comes for us. God is aware. Christ is present, having come in flesh, and it changes everything. Amen. It changes everything. One of the things that it does change and transforms is the way that we do ministry and the way that we reach out to our friends and our family. So we've spoken about the vertical. Now let's speak about the horizontal. It's such a key part of our church vision. We want to root people in Christ, understand what the gospel means for us. We want to plant in this family, be planted in friendship and relationship. But at the same time, we want to be fruitful in our lives. We want to count for Jesus. We want other people to know about who Jesus is. Yeah? And so the incarnation, this fact that God came down in a human form to us changes everything about how we see others and how we do mission and how we do ministry. And so... <coughs> um, what does it mean for us then to imitate Jesus who became human and lived amongst us as a human being? So the first thing I want to say is this. It would be wrong for us to think that um, as we reach out to the world and we preach the gospel to our friends and our family, we show others through our lives who Jesus is, that that is the same as the Word, the eternal Word of God coming down in human form. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that's what what we are doing. Uh, When I use the word incarnational, that we need to become incarnational, we can't be incarnational in the same way that Jesus was. Absolutely impossible. We are not God. We are not Jesus. But His Holy Spirit is in us, and He transforms how we see others. And the first thing that the incarnation demonstrates is God's great commitment to love the world, like we said last week, to live amongst us, to take on human flesh, and to die for us. That's what it does demonstrate. The second, ironically, the second thing that the incarnation demonstrates is that Jesus came as a human being and showed us what it means to be a perfect human being and to live as a perfect human being. So not only was he fully God, but he was also fully man, which means Jesus is the only perfect human being that lived and walked on this planet. And for us to become like him is a profound thing because he shows us in in who he is what it means to be human. Not just what it means to be God, but what it means to be perfectly human as God intended us to be. Amen? And so that's the Bible uses language like this to become the fragrance of Christ to others, to become the light of the world that doesn't go out in the darkness but shines brightly, to be salt in in the earth that doesn't lose its saltiness. Those are all images, metaphors of what it means to be like Jesus, perfectly human, to live as he intended us to live. And so 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 puts it like this. This is how we know we are in him, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. Amen? 
What a challenge to live as Jesus lived. That's what John says. This is how we know that we are in Christ, that through our lives we start to demonstrate who Jesus is to those around us. And at, at the very least, that implies, among other things, that we have a similar love for people as Jesus did, a similar commitment to them, to be present with them, to be amongst them, to share our lives with everybody. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what it means to live as Jesus lived. And so we certainly start by confessing who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He's the eternal Word. Come down in human form to be with us. And we confess that. But then we have to consider, well, how does that change how I see the world, how I see other people, how I see my family, and how I live my life? Because if I'm going to be like Jesus, it not must only be a spiritually vertical thing. It must be a horizontal thing in terms of how I see other people and how I live and what I do. So how are we to be salt? How are we to be light? How are we to be Jesus' hands and feet? How are we to be the fragrance of others, the fragrance of Christ to others over this Christmas time and forever as we go forward? Most broadly and simply, I want us to put it to you like this. Well, we need to look to Jesus as our model of ministry and mission as we try and go out into the world. Absolutely. If he is the great shepherd, if he is the teacher, if he is the perfect human, then we look to Jesus for our model in how we love other people and how we do mission. All right? And I want to just mention two simple things this morning. The first is this, culture and context. Culture and context. Uh, many people have used this idea of becoming incarnational in the sense of being like Jesus to do mission. And this phrase, incarnational mission, is uh, one that's been used often, but that, that was formed and formulated as a reaction to how people used to do mission in the 19th century, because the missionaries from Europe and America would go to far-flung parts of the world, but they came with a sense of superiority about their own culture to Africa and to India, for example, and so they tried to Christianize cultures, but they didn't have any sense of adapting to the culture that they were going to. It was not unusual for missionaries to be found in, for example, in India and in Africa, um, recreating England in Africa or re recreating England in India. So people were encouraged to dress a certain way and eat with knives and forks and uh, sing songs that were translated from English. And so very much whether they were encouraged to wear certain clothes and dress a certain way. And so whether these people were for, from Sweden or Germany or America or Great Britain, in their own minds, Christianizing, make, speaking of Jesus into the culture at the same time meant westernizing people and culturally making them like the West was. And so that's why people began to say, well, actually, no, that's not quite right because surely people need to sing hymns in their own language and songs in their own language. And surely they need to be um, demonstrating that into the culture that they were born, not in a Western way, but in a way that is relevant to the culture that they're from. Amen? And so this is where this idea comes from. And so it's easy to look at the mistakes of people of the past and um, say, well, they got it wrong. But I want to, at the same time, I want to recognize that we should celebrate the real accomplishments of these people their heroism in leaving their homes in order to bring Jesus to countless people that never heard the name of Jesus ever. And I, I experienced this firsthand once Helen and I were <coughs> in Taiwan on a mission when we were younger. And we were walking the streets of Taichung handing out um, 
tracks and speaking to people about Jesus. And we said to this one guy, do you know, have you, do you know Jesus? And he turned to us and he said, no, 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 I've never heard of Jesus. But if you go to the laundry around the corner, perhaps they've heard of him there. <laughs> Literally. And then I went, ah, he's never even heard the name of Jesus. He doesn't know what we're talking about. He thinks Jesus is another person that lives around the corner. Um, so we, we, we do want to acknowledge the mistakes of the past, but we certainly want to acknowledge the courage and the bravery of people that have gone to places where Jesus has never been heard of. And certainly in those places, clinics and schools and were built and women were elevated in their status in the culture. The Bible was translated into many languages. Local languages were preserved as people tried to learn the languages and write them down so that they could communicate in uh, the gospel, in uh, Bible, in local languages. Um, that's the testimony of my family. My father was a, a missionary to Africa, my grandfather. He, he, he was a Victorian. He was born in London in Dulwich. He grew up in London. In his 20s, he left and went to Africa with the London Mission Society where he met my grandmother. And he was part of that movement in the 1920s and the 1930s that went all over the world to plant churches. And when Helen has been studying at um, St. Melitus, I met a guy called Solomon, a guy from India, who was so grateful for the missionaries that came to India. And he said, I know all the stuff about colonization. Now people are kind of, have got multiple feelings about that. But he said, I'm so grateful that I went to a great school that was formed by Roman Catholic missionaries. And it changed my life that I could get a good education. And now I'm here studying theology in London because of things that someone paid the price for hundreds of years ago. Isn't that encouraging? So we, need, we must be wise. We must, we must look at the past and see the good, acknowledge the bad, but then not make the same mistakes because all these people that did these things, even though they got, they got so many things wrong, have also planted the seeds for thriving churches in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America. And so I'm saying all this because as we have tried to build a church here, one of the real values that we we hold to is that we want to be a multicultural church. We want people from all over the world to find a place here that they can worship Jesus with us and that there's not a sense of cultural superiority one over the other here. No, all of us have one Father. His name is Jesus. His name is our Father in heaven. We share the same Father, although we come from different cultures and we, we want to acknowledge that and live that out in this church context as we do mission into the community and into the world at large. Amen? And so the starting point for that approach is to understand what Jesus did in being incarnated into a specific, specific culture. Jesus, the eternal word, didn't come as some sort of featureless, generic human being. <laughs> he didn't kind of come as like a, you know, sort of non-descriptive non kind of person. No, he came into a, as a Jewish carpenter in a first century context into a Roman-occupied Palestine, and that affected how he did life, how he did mission, and how he reached out to people specifically in the culture that they were. And Paul says the same thing, remember? In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he says this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, although I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, 
though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law of love. So to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by any possible means, I might save some. Yes, I do for this all for the sake of the gospel that I can share in its blessings. I have done, become all things to all people so that by any possible means, I might save some, says Paul. Yep, and we need to have that same attitude and over history different people have so someone like Jay Hudson Taylor have you heard of him I've got some Indian examples because I've just been in India right so Jay Hudson Taylor uh, sorry he went to China and he took seriously this thing of trying to be part of the culture so what did he do um, he dressed in Chinese dress he dyed his hair black he wore uh, his hair in a Manchurian style to try and reach out to the people that he was ministering to I'm sure today he would be criticized and dismissed for cultural misappropriation of taking someone's culture and making it your own. Uh, it probably wouldn't have been so popular, but the point is that he was taking seriously this thing of, well, how do I connect with these people in this culture that God has called me to? And I want to ch challenge you and encourage you as we are a multicultural church, how do we connect with each other across cultural boundaries in a real way, acknowledging our, our own cultures, but at the same time embracing people from other cultures? Amen. Very quiet this morning. So we have to find a way as we reach out to our neighborhoods and our cities and this nation to identify culturally with the people that we serve rather than clinging stubbornly to our way of doing things in our own culture. Um, and there are limits to that, of course. I mean, Jesus, the fact that he was Jewish was not primarily a strategy that he adopted. It was, came because... God had a covenant from it in Israel's history that, that uh, Jesus was part of. And so his, the fact that he was Jews was more of a side benefit than a real sense of strategy. But the, the purest sense, the emphasis of the incarnation is not on Jesus' specific culture, but on the fact that he was human, that he was the perfect human that is an example to all of us. And so that's, he showed us what it means to be fully human. And, but that included taking on a specific culture, and living in that culture and acting as a participant of that culture. And so I want to encourage you this morning that we do that as we reach out in our own context here in London in a very multicultural community. What does that mean? What does that look like for us? How can we best engage with that in a real way? And the truth is, at the same time, if you're coming into a new culture, any immigrants here? Yes, lots of you immigrants. You always feel a little bit on the outside, no matter how much you try to be part of. And that has been the story of Helen and I as well. There was always, we came from the UK, uh, South Africa here, and there are always people that will see you as an outsider. Always. And that's just part of the deal. And that's part of the limitation. And so, as much as we try and approximate the new culture, we can never fully shed who we are. Uh, culturally, with our values, where we were born, our attitudes, the way of seeing the world that have shaped us since we were very small, since we were infants. That was just, that's just part of the deal. And you have to acknowledge that as well as you try to engage with people from a different culture. All right, that's the first thing I want to say. Secondly, I want to say this, the gospel also places limits on trying to engage with cultural re re relevance upon us. Um, a, a desire to be relevant into our culture 
can't mean that you capitulate to the culture and it removes the sharp edge of the gospel from what you are saying. Anyone say amen to that? You, you can't so commit, capitulate to the culture that you don't speak about Jesus at all because you want to be relevant to that culture. And unfortunately, that's what many churches have tried to do. Well, to get people through the doors, we become seeker-sensitive. Don't speak about Jesus too much or in an obvious way. Play great music. Don't mention Jesus too much. Just get them in the doors. No, that's compromising on who Jesus is. We have to at the same time declare with boldness who Jesus is, Athanasius contra mundum. Come on. Athanasius contra mundum. I'm so glad Martin Luther said no to Tetzel. He said, no, we're not going to pay indulgences anymore. I will stand on this alone. I don't care if no one else agrees with me. This will not move. And we live in the freedom of that. It takes courage, my friends to stand when no one else is standing around you. And everyone is caving in. And you just want to be liked. You just want to be that person that everyone likes. I don't want to fight with anyone. Athanasius contra mundem. Stand with those in history that have stood for the things of God, the things of truth. Don't budge. Be like Luther. Be like Augustine. Yeah, who said this was going to be easy? So we do have to uh, remove cultural constraints from the barriers of the gospel, but at the same time, it's dangerous to, to betray the faithfulness of, to Christ for easy sense of salvation that causes no cultural offense. We just won't offend the culture in any way. I'm not speaking about Jesus either. And so, take for example... One of the great ways that culture is communicated is through language. And as we think about coming into other cultures, um, language passes on culture like very other few cultural markers do. Above all, it's a means of communication. And without learning the language of a particular culture, you're not going to make any impact into that culture. And I've seen this directly with my friend Wayne, who you've met in Germany. One of the things that he decided to do immediately was to learn German so that he could preach in German. Yes? And guess what? His church is full of Germans, full of Germans that came from an atheist background. He's got over a thousand people in his church, all saved out of atheism because he learned German and preached in German. And I know of other churches in Germany where it's an international church and the guy speaks only English and it's translated. And what is those churches full of? They're full of international people, but no Germans. Got to, we've got to learn how to connect into the culture. Got to learn how to, as best as we can, to embrace the new thing we're going into so that we can be effective in the new thing that we're going to. I don't know what God is calling you to. Maybe he's calling you out of this culture into another one. Maybe God has called you here. Well, then let's, let's really learn and embrace and find out how best we can impact our own culture without compromising the gospel one tiny little bit. Amen? And there are theological reasons also why we do have to adapt to our culture, and it's unavoidable, the culture that we're ministering into. Leslie Newbegin is a wonderful, wonderful writer. He wrote a book called The Open Secret. He said this, being open to those who are not like us, to strangers, is the means by which the good news crosses culture so that the formerly estranged may be one in the body 
of Christ. Don't you love that? The formerly estranged, those that were far off, that didn't know Jesus, they can come into the new thing of the kingdom of God, the church, because we prepare to cross that barrier culturally and to engage with them with the, with the good news of Jesus. For all of our differences, there's only one God and Father of all, and He's the great eternal God that we love. And He shows no favoritism. He shows no partiality. Remember Acts chapter 10, verse 34? Peter gets up and he says this, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation those that fear Him and do what is right. Peter, the great Jewish theologian, the, the great foundation stone of the early church realizes, yeah, actually, there are no favorites in God's kingdom. All those that believe by faith have the same father. God is not partial to anyone. God is not English, believe it or not. God is God. He's not South African either. God is God. He shows no partiality to anyone. We are all children of the same father. Paul says that again, Romans 2, verse 11, for God does not show favoritism to anyone. We're all of the same father. And so, as we look at the New Testament, we can see these tensions played out involving cultural divides that were brought together in the early church. There were Aramaic-speaking Jews in Palestine. There were Hellenized Jews, Jews that came from a Greek background. There are Greek-speaking Gentiles in the Roman world. And the gospel brings them all together. And they demonstrates a whole new way of doing life. And so I want to encourage you in London that we have an example, we have an opportunity to bring all different kinds of people together and demonstrate how to do life together in a way that honors God as the father of all people and honors each other coming from different cultures and valuing everybody. Amen? This is very challenging. This is very true. This is what we're called to do. This is the good news. That we would one day see every single nation under heaven worshiping the great king. And we're called to live it out here on earth. And so I put it to you that it wasn't, wasn't only unavoidable in the early church, but it's always been part of God's plan. Why do I say that? Well, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, this is what it says. By, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. For he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, Jew and Gentile. Reconciled in Christ, one new humanity, one new body, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those that were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Yes! All of us, same access to the same Father by one Spirit because of Jesus incarnate God came down to us the perfect God the perfect human and showed us how to live as perfect human beings with each other so we all have a unique cultural heritage we start from that point 
but we also have to try as best as we can to be impartial to everyone as God is impartial, not playing cultural favorites, not demanding that Christians of other cultures practice their faith exclusively in our way of practicing our faith in our mode, but bringing cultures together as best as we can. One body, one Lord, one faith, one Father in heaven. Um, I said last week of the amazing worship expression in India, which was so different from how we do worship here. And I was just like, God, this is amazing. Your people love you all over the world. It looks different, it sounds different, but man, how they love you and how they want to respond to who you are. It sounds different in Cambodia. It sounds different wherever you go. It sounds different in Africa. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen. And we worship the same God. And so Jesus' incarnation reminds us that we can't divorce our witness, how we witness to other people, how we minister to other people from the context, the specific context in which we live. And we can't at the same time, we can't be neutral in our culture, we can't be neutral outside our culture, especially in any kind of cross-cultural context. And if we forget that, we're going to do it with painful consequences. We have to, we have to uh, in our witness to each other and into our families and our communities, there's no room for cultural arrogance, there's no room for insensitivity. All of us must enter into the new place that God has called us with humility seeking to be like Jesus and translate the gospel in that context in a way that is real for that context and relevant for that context. Amen? That's the first thing. That's my first point. My second point will take five minutes. So the first thing is we need to be aware of our culture and context as we live out the gospel as Jesus is our example of what it means to be a perfect human and at the same time demonstrate God to the world. Secondly, we need to have for uh, do mission and ministry in the way of Jesus. And that's, that's what I want to land on. Um, in Jesus, we simply see the deepest and purest revelation of who God is. Remember Colossians we studied a while back? It says, he is the fullness of the invisible God. Uh, what did Jesus say? He said, if you look at me and see me, you have seen the Father. So Jesus is the perfect revelation, the deepest and purest revelation of who God is. He lived amongst us. He touched human, human beings. He spoke like an ordinary person. He ate. He slept. He walked. He bled. He died like any other human being, except he rose again, which is wonderful. But in every other way, he was, he was like us as a human being. And so also in Jesus at the same time, we found our own destiny in that we are to be remade into his image. We are to become more and more like him. We are to, over the course of our lives, be open to the Holy Spirit transforming us from the inside out so that we can become more and more like Jesus so that through our lives, we reveal who Jesus is to other people. That's our destiny. That's what he's called us to be, to be like him. And so N.T. Wright, in his wonderful book, Following Jesus, he puts it like this. He says, because of the cross, Jesus offers us here now his own sonship, his own spirit, his own mission to the world. The love which he incarnated by which we are saved is to become the love which fills us beyond our capacity and flows out to heal the world so that the word may become flesh once more and dwell not just amongst us but within us. Having beheld his glory, we must then reveal his glory, glory of the beloved children of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. That's what we're called to do. 
feel the fullness of God, who God is and to show the glory of God to those whoever we can. So last little Indian example. There was a famous, famous missionary in the 1930s from America called E. Stanley Jones. He went to India and his whole life he, he reached out to Indian people and he was a great evangelist. And so um, he asked, he became personal friends with Gandhi and he asked Gandhi this, and I'm quoting from a, a book of his called the, uh, the Song of Ascents where he talks about his life. And he asked Gandhi this, he said, what must do we need to do to make Christianity more naturalized in India? Not a foreign thing, identified with a foreign government, but a part of the national life. What do we do to make, to make Christianity part of this country in a way, in a primary way? To which Gandhi, Gandhi responded like this. I would suggest four things. First, that all you Christians, missionaries and all, must begin to live more like Jesus. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's be like Jesus. Number two, that you practice your religion without adulterating it or toning it down. Third, that you emphasize love and make it your working force, for love is central to Christianity. Fourth, that you study non-Christian religions more sympathetically to find the good in them to have a more sympathetic approach to the people. Isn't that Amazing. And so then, reflecting on that, Jones said, says this, what he found most remarkable was that to be naturalized or to have the gospel enter culture without being foreign, the most important thing is to be more Christian, not less, more, to show Jesus more clearly, not less, not water it down, not change it, not excuse it, no, show Jesus clearly, be light, be salt, be the fragrance of Christ so people can see the difference. He said in his croaky voice. So when I'm speaking about the incarnational gospel, I'm speaking about becoming more Christian, more like Jesus, not less like Jesus, of becoming more like him who became one of us, who blessed the marginalized, who went to the poor, who exposed hypocrisy wherever he went, who lifted up dying-hearted people and gave them vision for his life, their lives, who lived and ate like an ordinary human being and walked amongst ordinary people and was obedient even though it cost him his life. That's what I'm calling about, talking about when I say, let's be more incarnational in our mission to the world, to our friends, to our family. Let's become like Jesus more and more. And what did he say in Luke chapter 4 when he... He takes the scroll in verse 16, and he quotes Isaiah. He unrolls the scroll. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news. Good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to prisoners, everyone bound up, to proclaim the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This day, this is fulfilled in your hearing. What a, what a gospel. 
And so I want to put it to you, and I'm not trying to, I'm not, as we think about others, I'm not trying to bring condemnation on anyone, but I, want to, I do want to say this. Our sins are most exposed. Our sins of greed, our sins of covetedness, our sins of selfishness are most exposed through how we view the poor. And when that sin is revealed, when we see those own things in our hearts that we're really just living for ourselves and we're completely selfish and we don't really, in practical ways, care for others, God calls us to receive that correction, to confess our sin, and to turn and receive his mercy so that we can continue on a way of righteousness. We have to acknowledge, yes, Lord, I'm selfish. I'm so sorry. Help me to be a little less unselfish. Yes, Lord, I'm a hoarder. Help me not to hoard so much so I can be a blessing to other people. And that's what I mean when I'm talking about the incarnational gospel that's lived out in a way for ministry and mission in the way of Jesus, like Jesus, it's a commitment to people. It's a commitment to embody the good news through our lives and through what we preach and what we say. It's a, a commitment to meditate on the presence of Jesus wherever he's needed and to mediate that presence into the culture. And as we continue as this body of Christ to be that, to be salt and light, we are his presence, his fragrance on the earth. And so I want to put it to you this Christmas that we are, we're going to be faithful to be salt and light. We don't run from the world. We run towards the world. We run towards the need of the world, not from it. And we have to be willing to lay down something of our lives so that we can touch humanity just as Jesus did through our lives. And so it wasn't a strategic kind of decision for Jesus to come and be incarnational, to, to come as God. And it, was, it, was, it was a calling that Jesus came to be made one of us. And it's in the same way, it's our calling to follow Jesus with our crosses taken up. And remember Matthew 16, 24 says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and, for, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And lastly, 1 Peter 2, 21, to this you were called because Jesus suffered for you leaving you an example that you too would follow in his footsteps. And that's my prayer for all of us this Christmas time, that we really would follow in the footsteps of Jesus, that we take up our cross, whatever that means, that we, for our personal lives, that we would truly become disciples, that embody the gospel, that live out the gospel, that we would truly become Christians that become more and more like Jesus, not less like him, that we become more courageous and bolder to speak into our culture, that the cry of our hearts would be Athanasius, like Athanasius, Athanasius contra mundum. Even if I'm the only one, I will stand. I will be the one that stands on the truth of the gospel for the sake of my family and my friends and the culture in which I live. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray. Musicians want to come. Maybe let's just uh, lift our hands. Uh, there's nothing magical in that. It's just a posture of opening our hearts to the Lord and to the Holy Spirit and saying, Jesus, we are open to hear, we are open to receive. Jesus, thank you for your, 
your work in our lives. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace and your favor and every good thing that you pour out upon us. And Lord, we come to you as your sons, as your daughters. We come to you with many different backgrounds, many different gifts, many different callings. Uh, but we thank you, Lord, that you are our Father in heaven. We thank you that in you we are one. We ask that you'd help us to engage across cultures that are not familiar to our own, that we wouldn't in, any, wouldn't in any way have any sense of arrogance or superiority over other people, that we truly would seek to understand, to hear, to listen, to embrace, that we would truly be able to demonstrate to our community that in your church there's a whole different humanity because of what Jesus has done. That everything that divided us has been dealt with on the cross and we are reconciled firstly to you and then to each other. Help us to live boldly like this. We want to enjoy who we are as people. Thank you for making us people from all over the world. But help us to be those that truly live like you to minister to those in the world that are different from us. We love you, Jesus. We want to say thank you so much for all that you've done, all that you've brought for us through your death, through your resurrection. And we ask for your empowering grace right now to live like this. We can't do it on our own. And as we worship now, Lord, seal these things in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Help us in Jesus' name, I pray. Come down on your people. Refresh us, Jesus. Thank you, Lord.